G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, this is the Footyology Podcast preliminary final review edition and uh, two epic games to talk lots about tonight. We have our grand finalists, they are Richmond and GWS. Once again, of course, GWS making their first ever grand final, but once again, for the eighth year in a row, we will have a Victorian team playing off for a premiership against a non-Victorian team. As I say, very good evening to my co-host, Mark Fine. How are you, Finey? I'm great. I, like many football fans, almost mentally preparing for a Richmond-Collingwood grand final. We came very close to having neither of them in the grand final effectively, but I am now really excited about the new boys taking on Richmond because this is Oh, it's a, as you are, a great columnist, a great writer's dream, this GWS story. This was a team engineered to make a grand final, I went and checked it, make a grand final in their eighth year. Ah, yes, yes, it was Mike Fitzpatrick who, who said that. But his engineering, and I guess you would call it a visionary if you don't like the idea that he might have been tampering with the the workings of what should be a football competition that lives off its own steam. His view of the, what that team would be in their first grand final is so different to what it is. It would have been busting at the seams with a Patton and a Cameron, Lance Franklin at centre-half forward, Dylan Shield, Trelaw, they all would have been there or traded for even better quality players. It took this side to be forced through um, departures and injuries to go back to the real essence of a football team, a collection from all forms, all walks of football life. Yep, no, I, from I, Sam Reid to Brent Daniels to the elite. I agree, and I think that uh, that journey has helped. Uh, instill a soul within a club. Yes, I think yes. it's actually worked in their favour. And, of course, the other half of the grand final story, big, big game for them. There's no doubt Richmond has been the best side of the last three seasons. Uh, it's a performance that certainly warrants two premierships out of the three at the very least. If they come away from this three years with only one premiership, they will absolutely not have done themselves justice. One last observation. We're going to hear all the stats men during the week beat us around the heads with the hieroglyphics of 14th best in stoppages, second best in kicks, one goals won from free kicks with you know, ponytails. Every stat under the sun will be interpreted by a million geniuses as though they're talking to a trillion idiots. But didn't we see on the weekend what football really compared down to? A very simple fact, and that is... A big key forward is a must. The teams that didn't have it lost. The teams that did have one 
are playing off in a granny. Yeah, no, good point. And I think uh, just a, a simple intangible sometimes like effort and uh, that last five minutes of the Collingwood GWS preliminary final, some of the most desperate football I think I've ever seen. I'll tell you one thing I'd like some stats on right now, Fine. I've got them ready. Hamburgers. I've got them. Okay, reel them off. They are first for buns. Yep. In Australia, of yep. all the beef patties made, yep. they're first. In assembly of burgers, they're first. Mm. In longevity, they're first. Yep. In quality, they're first. Mm. You know what they're 18th in? What? Or last? What? In being open on Sundays. Otherwise, <laughs> they are Andrew's Hamburgers, the kings of burgers. And where would I find them? The Lords reside at 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, and have done for nigh on 80 years. That's four score and no years ago. Can you give me some stats on new houses as well? Yes. New houses are being built by builders ranging from buffoons with two left hands and no qualifications to the elite. And at the top end is Nick Spartels and Hardwick Build Co. Of course, with all the necessary qualifications, registrations, but more importantly, with the imprimatur of some of Melbourne's most recognisable sporting faces and not a disgruntled client amongst all those that have had annexes or houses built in full by these brilliant builders, Nick Spartel and Hardwick Bilko, in the southeast Melbourne suburbs. If you need a new house or a hamburger, or anything in between, actually, if it's something in between, get it yourself. If it's a burger, it's Andrews. If it's a house, it's Spartels and Hardwick. Nice plug. We've got two massive games to get through and a lot else besides. Let's not mess around. On Footyology, wrap around. Rightio, was this the second preliminary final? That's the one important detail I forgot to look up. It was the second preliminary final. Played first on of course, Friday yes. evening. Yes. As you would. Oh, no, that's, that makes perfect sense. And uh, yeah, classic AFL thinking. It was between, of course, Richmond and Geelong, and it resulted eventually in a win to the Tigers. 12 goals, 13, 85, 19-point victors over the Cats, 9-12-66. The goals for the Tigers. Lynch, 5, Martin, 2, Castagna, 2, Prestia, 2, and a single to Lambert. For Geelong, three to Kelly, two to Myers, singles to Ablett, Narkel, Dangerfield and Henderson. Well, I've got to say, finally, you know, uh, we, we've talked a lot about the impact of the pre-finals by on the qualifying finals winners, qualifying final winners and the potential uh, shortage of footy. Now, opinions divided on this. I thought... Despite their little burst of goals in the first quarter, the Tigers looked, uh, in comparison to their opposition, quite sluggish for that first half. And in fact, went to the halftime break with a 21-point deficit they were staring down. Game opened with uh, a goal to uh, Gary Ablett. Richmond, as they're prone to do, a a power-packed burst of uh, three goals in only about three minutes, I think, Dusty Martin got the first one, and then two big goals to Tom Lynch, who already looks set for a, an imposing display. He nudged out um, Harry Taylor for the first one, and uh, then he... Well, the, th- the, the second one was 
extraordinarily good work out of the middle by Nankervis to Prestia. Yep. He actually dropped the mark then, Lynch, but had the wherewithal to pick it up and kick it from the goal line. May I say that that tap Nankervis to Prestia was a very isolated piece of good ruck work for Richmond in that first half. Well, it was also a good <laughs> a good example of the sort of thing we were supposed to see a lot more of with the 666, but hasn't necessarily been the case. No. So Richmond, uh, three goals in, in three minutes, and they're already 13 points up, and everyone's thinking, here we go. But didn't pan out like that. Geelong really regained their composure at this stage. They certainly started dominating possession, And uh, towards the end of that first quarter, in fact, at one stage they'd had 11 out of 12 inside 50. So it was at about the 28-minute mark. was Tim Kelly got him back within eight points with a nice snap from about 30 metres out. He was already dominating midfield. I think that was his seventh possession of the evening. And Brian Myers, who uh, was very, very busy early on, he kicked uh, first goal from about 45 with that uh, interesting kicking style of his and then butted up for a second one from about 30 metres out after a, uh, a lovely pass, beautifully weighted pass from Quinton Narkle. Kelly also hit the post and the Cats went to the first break, a goal up, having uh, looked quite ominous in the last probably seven to eight minutes of play. A quarter time, I don't think we realised how good a quarter Geelong had just played because The next two quarters would show how difficult it was to score at that end of the ground. There was definitely a more than a zephyr to the punt road end, and unlike most wind at the MCG, it wasn't swirling, it wasn't uh, unpredictable. It just made it a bit more difficult to score at the city end of the ground. So four goals going to that end in the first quarter was telling, and at this point in the game, Richmond have a couple of problems. Problem number one, their ruckmen are not firing at all, and Stanley is actually going all right. Problem number two is, call it ring rust, call it what you will, but Richmond are now needing to almost um, get their feet back underneath them. They are not able to hit any targets this would go on right till half time. We'll talk about the second quarter now, but they start to become, they don't panic, but they start to almost, as one, lose confidence in their ability to hit up teammates. Well, Geelong's dominance just spilled over into the second term. They had the uh, the first goal on the board of a second quarter after only 22 seconds, straight from that centre bounce. And once again, Grian Myers, having kicked the last two of the first quarter, Set up a goal for Kelly with two handball attempts. I think the first one was smothered, got the second one away. Kelly kicks a goal. Geelong suddenly 12 points up. And then what would become a, a critical miss for them, Blitzarves. Uh, bad miss from pretty much directly in front. They could have had a three-goal lead. That had uh, a couple of minutes after that, they'd had 13 of the previous 15 inside 50s. Uh, Tui kicked another point for them, so it was 3-3 to 5-6 at that stage. The inside 50s for the quarter, nine minutes in, was 7 to zip, and the game tally was 10 to 23. So absolutely dominant. And uh, just probably um, Shy Bolton had a snap for the Tigers, which was a point. Martin then took a mark about 25 out and missed, and that was about the period they just started to get a, a foothold back in the contest. And they needed that foothold because things were starting to get out of control, 
and star players were not were, were almost um, absent. They were MIA'd. Now I was at the game live, and I didn't refer revert to stats. So maybe there was some possessions, but nothing meaningful really from Cochin at that point. No. Shane Edwards, who no, had such a, a good season, was uh, ineffective or disappeared as well. We would in the second half very quickly learn the value of rewalp, but we start asking. Well, come on, Jack, you know, can you get up the ground and do something perhaps? And maybe of greatest concern is that Dustin Martin started kicking the ball badly. One terrible kick inside 50. And this guy who is really, and remember, we had the discussion early in the year about his field kicking. Mm. Well, it was only a couple of weeks ago. You you would have sort of... um, Every time he kicked it, you would have thought, come on, mate, you're not yeah. backing me up here. I was waiting for the Twitter pile on, but uh, fortunately, but it, people it, might have been preoccupied. This was a great concern. Is Dustin imploding here? Mm. Well, the one the one mid they had that was keeping him in it, I thought, was Dion Prestia. Correct. Correct. Um, at the same time, about half, by about halfway through the second quarter, Dangerfield had already had racked up 12 disposals. Kelly was up to 14. Yeah. Uh, Prestia kept him in at midfield. The other guy who was keeping him in it, in it off half-back, and I will expand on this, Bashar Hawley, yeah. who uh, he is one of the great big-game performers. Uh, it is becoming clearer and clearer, I think. I must say that early on in the game, I thought the potentially Gold Coast-bound Brandon Ellis was very good. Yeah, well, he um, he ended up pretty much in their best players, yeah. by, my, yeah. by my reckoning. But Geelong, uh, Richmond did start to get a foothold back in the game, but Geelong got the next goal again through Quinton Narkel, and they're up to a 19-point lead at this stage. The Tigers starting to win a bit more more of the ball. They had a couple of... Um, Dusty had a kick smothered, I think, by Menegola. Castagna had one smothered. They then turned it around. They actually had seven of the next nine inside 50s for a return of only two behinds. And that shocking Martin turnover where he's running inside the 50 and just kicked it straight to uh, Tom Stewart. So that didn't help. But you could just sense that they were sort of starting to get a bit of a, a feel and starting to go through Spot the gears on. a little bit. That Martin um, poor T- kick yeah. came on the back of their first really crisp and damaging ball movement out of the back line that left Geelong flat-footed that you thought, okay, they're they're now rolling. But the scoreboard was still a concern, wasn't it? Well, I mentioned um, I mentioned Bashar Hooley, and he, in fact, set up Richmond's next goal and only their fourth goal of the game, their first one for oh, over a, well over a quarter of play, and that was to Castagna, about 35 metres out. Looked like they were going to go into half-time with about a two-and-a-half-goal deficit. Very gettable. Just before that, that, that was a... I, I felt that that was a really um, low-percentage kick unless you're absolute certain of your kicking skills, Hawley de Castagna. Mm. He, he must be on the top of, top of his game. You know, this was a game where it's, it's a preliminary final and not many kicks hitting the target. And he had every right to kick that sort of more to the top of the square. And he's really sliced it into sort of the upper half of Castagna's body. It was a great kick. And then, of course, uh, what what might have been, or at that stage looked like it could have been a critical uh, error made by the Tigers handing Paddy Dangerfield a 50-metre penalty after um, Trent Cochin. In fact, uh, it was a weird one, wasn't it? Uh, Dangerfield got a a free kick in a marking contest, and the, the free kick was... 
clearly there. Absolutely. Cochin yeah. had the ball. Basha Hooli, I think, put his hand up for the ball. I can't understand why Basha might have thought it was their free kick. It was just weird. Cochin throws it to Hooli. I think that's a bit rough. You know, they've got 90,000 baying for You blood. reckon it shouldn't have been? For, he should have given him the benefit oh, of the doubt. Oh, he's a captain. He's not an idiot, Cochin. Yeah. He did not hear. Well, remember, it happened famously to Sam Mitchell in the 2012 grand final at yeah. a critical moment yeah, as well. But sometimes it is excused. Mm. And then, and I'll be doing this in hot or not, Dangerfield... Acted like an ass. All right, well, keep your powder dry on that one. He did, however, kick the goal. And uh, four seconds before the siren, that made the difference, 21 points. And in a preliminary final, that's no mean, uh, no small advantage. Um, however, the Tigers came out breathing fire and they got a goal back within a minute of the recommencement of play in the third quarter. And that was once again to Lynch came from the first centre bounce and probably, for me, symbolically, perhaps the game-turning moment. And it was Trent Cotchin's tackle on Reece Stanley. Ball spills out to Josh Kenny. He got it off to Prestia and Prestia hit Lynch on a lovely lead. Terrible, terrible um, sort of game awareness and also sort of shot selection by Reece Stanley, though, as he tried to gallop, cut back and gallop through the middle of or out through the... You know, top end of the fifty meters, fifty meter um, square. He just bit off more than he can chew mm. at a time when, really, the percentage play they they had players that they had them done to rights there. Yeah, they had players running free. It was stupid play by Stanley. Well, it's sort of about picking a moment, isn't it? Yeah. And I reckon when you're on top and you know the other side's going to absolutely throw the kitchen sink at you, the first centre bounce of a half isn't the time to be you know, taking a bit of a gamble. You play the percentages. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Next goal came uh, just after the four-minute mark, and now the gap was reduced to eight points. And here it is, sort of got lost in the wash a bit, this, but one of the most brilliant taps oh, I think I've wash. ever seen. Oh, mate, that is the greatest assist. Yeah, okay, well, let me talk about it. I, I don't, lost that? Well, I don't think it got, uh, I don't think it got discussed much in, <laughs> in the post-game talk I saw, but... Uh, uh, Jack Rewalt, I think he was one up against three and uh, just brilliantly spotted Dusty Martin out the back and tapped it over the back of the pack and Martin ran into an open goal. Rowan, it was unbelievable. The single-mindedly he intended from the minute he was running to that contest, he had one plan in mind and he executed it with a degree of difficulty of the triple somersault reverse. It was a 10.0. It was a... First of all, he had to fly. He had to palm it. But this is not easy because he's hitting a running target or a target. He can't hit it to the ground. It's not just a matter of knocking it forwards or puncturing it forwards. He had to soft hands it. It was superb. Mm. I, well, yeah, he's got, a, he's got a great football brain, Jack. Well, that's exactly it. It was the polar opposite to Paul Reese, who's often been criticised for not having that awareness and it makes all the difference, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And so the Tigers had come out breathing fire. In fact, Geelong still hadn't had a uh, forward 50 entry at this stage of the quarter. Uh, about 10 minutes of seesawing football, but then Castagna, Castagna, sorry, I'm going to make sure I get that right, uh, after an uh, unfortunate turnover from Myers. And one thing that was becoming apparent to me at this stage already was that Richmond had upped the ante in the pressure stakes so much 
that, or not just the pressure, but their positioning, I think, was so good that Geelong in the first half had been very intent on playing on at all costs. They weren't given the space to be able to do that. And they once again sort of descended into this stop-start game, which suited Richmond to a tee. And at the 16-minute mark, Castagna popped up with a goal, and it was now one point the difference. And that 16 minutes marked a brilliant return to the contest by the captain, Trent Coxon. Now, you know, great footballers don't dwell on a poor half or a poor quarter. They, at the recommencement of any quarter, even after a goal, they reset. And, you know, he could have, the de- the demons could have been playing on him. He hasn't had a lot of football in the last couple of months, and he's the one player who would not have wanted the week off. But he was, I think, instrumental through tackling, through um getting the ball forward, good hands, everything you want from a captain in that 15 minutes. Richmond finally hit the front uh, just before time on. It's about the 19-minute mark with Lynch's fourth goal of the evening. There was a, um, a subplot going on here too with injuries, which was Jack Graham had, had his shoulder pop out, went down the rooms for quite some time, had it taped up, emerged back onto the field um, with his arm pretty much hanging limply from his side and uh, game effort. And I'm told his shoulder popped out about four times during the game. Yep. Uh, actually, I was talking to Dr. Rowan White, who does an excellent job on the boundary for Triple M. And uh, he said uh, he's had both shoulders go, Graham, and he, he has what they call loose shoulders. But uh, he wasn't able to do much, but just having his uh, rotation out there helped them with being able yep. to spread the load a bit. But when Nathan Broad got KO'd, uh, not long after the Lynch goal, um, the uh, lack of able bodies was starting to become p- perhaps a, a bit of an issue for the Tigers. A most unusual KO. He gave away a free kick in doing it. Oh, did he? Yeah. But was, and that's actually when I realised something happened in that free kick that gave me grave concern for Richmond. Mm. Because it was Brian Myers who was the recipient. He sort of pushed him in the back and then afterwards... Um, just copped a bit of a knock, and I think he hit his head on the ground or something mm. there like it. But Grian Myers had a shot from not dissimilar distance out to the one he kicked in the first quarter, but from the other side of the ground. And it wasn't badly struck, but the wind sort of really looked like it was held it up and pushed it off line a bit. And, well, then we had probably at the other end one of the most beautiful, effortless, long-kick goals you'll see in a final. Dion Prestia. Yeah. To me, that indicated that we have got a scoring end at this ground. But Richmond had given themselves a little bit of a buffer till the. <laughs> you reckon Blitzav's shot of goal was bad? Henderson takes a very, you know, a good mark. What was he, 15 metres out? Oh, about 20, I reckon. I thought he missed it. Yeah. Well, it was a, a very close it, it thing. It did it sneak in. It, incidentally, the Prestia goal, I've, I'm just going, looking at my notes here, I've got Martin ripped ball out. You know, yeah. So Dusty Martin's strength in being able to extract the ball. Did, yeah. But what a beautiful kick it was. Yeah. Oh, look, he, he, he's a terrific player, Prestia, and, uh, gee, he's had a great, um, great final series thus far. So uh, Tigers 10 points up. Henderson's goal, of course, right on the siren. Back to four points, and you're thinking, well, were you thinking? Were you thinking anyone's game? I must admit I was thinking, I thought Richmond might finish the stronger. Well, interestingly, my seats were fantastic, and I was positioned around a nest of former coaches, six or seven AFL coaches. And luckily, 
uh, through time in media, I know them. And I saw Jeff Geeson. What did he think? Well, first of all, he said, he's still umpiring finey. I said, no, he goes, you were, he said, I saw you one day, you were very good. He said, very unfit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he said, I'm worried, I'm worried here, that's not a big enough lead. He goes, that's the score, there's a scoring end here. Um, and his words were spot on, I think. He said, it's going to take a great effort by Richmond to win. He says, I think they'll win, but that'll show how great they are. And I, I think that even though the scores were close and they had the momentum, it was going to take a heck of a lot for Richmond to win this game. Well, they got a, uh, just the start they needed in the last quarter with a goal to Lambert three minutes in. Um, here's where my handwriting lets me down. I've written Edwards here, but I'm not quite sure what he did. It would have passed to Lambert. Lambert found himself free in the forward line, so it was definitely from a, a chess mark. He'd run forward, and this is something that Lambert had been so good at all year, was finding space, getting off the hook. He wasn't his normal telling self, but this was a telling goal. Geelong got it back. Tim Kelly, who was outstanding for the Cats, let's uh, not uh, sell short his efforts, converted a little chip pass from Tom Atkins. Again, pretty long range. Yep. Uh, seven minutes in, five points the difference. We then had a uh, chance either way. Ablett, a point for the Cats. Uh, Rewalt missed from 25 metres out. Tiger still five points in front. Next goal came at the 12-minute mark, and it was Lynch's fifth. This is what, what you need. You, you need a target. You need somebody. As Richmond are running towards the city end of the ground, it is hard to kick goals on the run there. It's mm. not easy. But they have a genuine forward. And, look, we'll talk about Rewalt later because Rewalt actually, you know, he was great in that last quarter and just couldn't quite seal the deal. But at the other end of the ground, the brave Henderson was now being outpointed. Well, I've got notes here all the way through here. With with that goal, I've got Martin Shepherd. I think Dusty played a better game than the stats might indicate. Did a lot of really team-orientated, yeah, yes, selfless yeah, yeah. things. Rewald hit the post. Uh, Tigers 12 points up. But he's uh, starting to look really good, Rewald, isn't he, at, at this point? Yeah, well, he's got a habit of that. Even when he's quiet, he'll, he'll sort of work his way into a game. Uh, Dangerfield had dropped off a bit. In fact, um, coming up to only about 10 minutes left, he'd only had five second-half disposals. Yeah. Graham missed a chance to all but clinch a deal. But, uh, Tiger still two goals up. But then I think the key three or four minutes of the game, yeah, they soaked up time very effectively, well, didn't they? This is what, this is why, and we don't like it as footy fans. We love shootouts and scores because that's what brings us to our feet. But the coaches love defensive setups that hold. Mm. It's almost like you know, uh, hold the fortifications; they're attacking. Hold. Yeah. Well, Richmond did have to. They had to repel. The onslaught because Geelong are a great team. They finished on top, and there is an opportunity. Blitzavs works into the clear. The ball is kicked cross ground, and Blitzavs looks upfield and has options. Surely, with his athleticism and being free on on the line of the square going forward, there will be a loose man. But there wasn't. Every Richmond defender to a man had 
cut off his options. He paused. He had to go back over the mark. And then he made what appeared a bad decision, but I don't think it was terrible. He rolled the dice with a very risky hand pass that didn't come off. But the problem was not his doing. It was great work by the Richmond defenders. So people might say, did Floston play well? Did they? Yes, they did, because when it mattered... They, they they did not give their opponents a breath of dis, a breath of separation. It was great play. Their their positioning behind the ball, um, and it's been talked about a bit, but probably not enough. It's been pivotal in what they've achieved over the last three years. I remember the Dreamtime game last year when they absolutely smashed Hessenden, and I sat up in the second deck of the um, Southern Stand, and the entire game featured Essendon just desperately trying to clear the lines and Richmond just setting up brilliantly outside the 50. This is what they do well, isn't it? It's brilliant. And uh, it's, it's, a, um, it's a, a testament to, to their coaching. And, and, all, and in fact, until this year, Ben Rutten. So all goes well for the Bombers. And I had a look at it because I, I was fascinated by it. Being at the ground, you could look at things not, di- not dictated to by TV producers. And it's not one player. It's not like with Brisbane Hodge marshalling the troops. All of them had their man, and were talking to their teammates. Floston, very vocal. To Hawley, in turn with Ellis. All of them are working each other. Asprey, there's no clear, there's no individual there that is not part of guaranteeing that their nearest teammate, anything in their vision, is the house is in order. Mm. And when six guys do that, the house is in order. And, yeah, look, it's it's an incredible unit. Uh, Prestia's snap from, what, 40-odd metres makes a difference. 18 points. There's only five minutes left on the clock. And that was game over. I mean, look. It was when Rewald celebrated and the bloke in my aisle ran up screaming, yeah, we're, except it wasn't a goal. Yeah, I've got <laughs> Rewalt Miss as the last note I've written. In the end, um, yeah, look, I mean, 19 points, and given the low-scoring nature of it, it looks like a pretty comfortable win. But it really was uh, another terrific comeback from the Tigers and their capacity to uh, roll with the punches, not get rattled. And I did ask Damien Hardwick this at the press conference um, after the game. W- would the that side last year have been able to get back from the same situation. And he didn't say, no, they wouldn't. But there's no doubt this is a far more mature, not a far more mature, but it is a more mature version of Richmond than we got a year ago and perhaps even a year, two years ago when they won the flag. Yeah, I agree with all of that. But again, maybe I'm a simple man with a a very simple take on the situation. That is that they were the premiers in 2017. They weren't quite quite right last year, mainly because Dustin Martin wasn't quite right in the finals, I felt. Mm. And then they went out and got the best recruit in the AFL. They picked up a star forward who is now living up to the billing. Every person from Dermot down who drooled over him from the day he stepped out knows that this guy can be a key forward. What a person to add to that team. I mean... For all the changes in mentality and psychology and everything that went wrong last year that's been improved on this year, nothing's as good as putting Lynch in the team. No, absolutely. Um, I should mention, or we should mention, in that last quarter, I think a player might have saved his spot in the team if it was in doubt, because I hadn't seen much of Ivan Soldo, but two very good marks 
it reminds us why he's needed, especially against the taller forward line of the GWS Giants. A quick word on the Cats, whose season is, of course, over. That may be the last time we see Tim Kelly. It was a pretty good sign-off, three goals and 31 disposals. They um, obviously, and Chris Scott did say, I will fight tooth and nail to keep him. Um, they're going to be in a, a spot of bother if oh, he goes. That was, that was the nag. You know what? I, I spoke to a couple of Geelong supporters on the way out. I engaged them. And they're pretty pleased with their team, pretty proud of their performance. But their long faces wasn't weren't weren't for the missed opportunity for the premiership. It was for the realization that clearly the best player on the night and their equal best player, probably with Dangerfield for the year, is heading back to WA, and that that leaves them something a bit sick in the pit of their stomach, like you can't replace Tim Kelly. Uh, not only that, I mean, you're talking about a side that uh, finished on top of the ladder. And and yet, in the end, again, bombed out in finals. Lost two out of three. It's becoming a recurring theme. I'll tell you what the game told me, that Gary Ablett should go on for another year. I thought he was good. I thought he... he That's interesting. A few people are saying that was the sign he should retire. No way. I thought he trapped the ball and, and did well in difficult circumstances, keeping the ball in the forward line and and... gaining possessions. There were worse players than him. I'd, I, what, I'm sorry for laughing. Do those people think that Ablett should retire and Dalhouse go on? Well, they're probably the same people who think that all Victoria is going to be getting behind Richmond next week, which I'll come to soon. The other, there are a couple of players that I would. What do you think the future of Harry Taylor is? Uh, I think he should play on. Okay, and Zach Tui? Uh I thought he was okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm saying yeah, they, yeah. they were not terrible players, yeah. and Geelong obviously. Missed Tom Hawkins. Would Did they ver- what? <laughs> yeah, it would have been very hard though to drop Henderson. I thought he, for the difficult role he was given, worked manfully. Yeah, but uh, he's not Tom Hawkins. No, of course not. Yeah, but the good news for them, that Tom Atkins, Jenkins, he played big game football. He is physical, and he was not. He was. He didn't fade at all during. He, I thought he was great for the future. Clark is going to be a. M- Excellent inclusion yeah, they back into him. the team. They did miss him. Um, more of a worry is a parfit. Yeah, he struggled. He struggled with the um, temperature, didn't he? Yeah. They would have loved Mitch Duncan. Yeah, just another nice kick in the team because there was a bit of ball slaughtering going on. Yeah, no, they definitely got plenty of thinking to do over the next six months. And the Tigers, of course, into their second grand final in the last three years. And so we moved on to Saturday. Rightio, the first preliminary final at the, uh, well, it's not unusual anymore, uh, different game time, 4.35pm, of course, allowing the non-Victorian side, were they to win, um, to travel home on the same evening. I thought it was just they picked out the point in the day where the rain was going to be the heaviest. I don't know, but it's a crap time to start a game, isn't it? I hate twilight games. Oh, for some reason, I don't know why. I thought it was a 2.30 start. I don't know why. I was, Did you? Yeah. I had stuff to do very Did busy. Did you really? Really. Very busy in the morning. <laughs> sat down. Thought, what's going on here? What have I done? Hang on. Why would I have thought it was 2.30? I don't know why I thought it was 
But then um, I had such a boring two hours waiting for the game. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got there nice and early so I could make sure I got in the car park and uh, I was good catching up with some footy media mates. But anyway, let's talk about the game. So an epic four-point win to GWS, 8-8-56, defeating Collingwood, 7-10-52. Goals, three to Jeremy Cameron, two to Jeremy Finlayson, singles to Taranto, Williams and Daniels. For the Pies, two to Stevenson, two to Thomas, two and singles to Reed, Elliott and Main. All eyes at the first bounce on Matt DeBoer from GWS. Who would he pick up from the Pies? We both uh, theorised that it might be um, a, a better move to pick up Sidebottom, but he went to Pendlebury, yes. so quite predictable. And uh, the game started in drizzle, and that would be a, a portent of things to come. This was a classic wet weather game, uh, ball handling very difficult, not much clean possession. So every goal, every opportunity, and opportunity missed was going to count for plenty. And the Pies got away to pretty good start. Um, Jack Crisp was terrific early, I thought, and uh, he was pivotal to the first goal of a game, a, a run through the centre and a lovely kick to Jamie Elliott, who found plenty of space in the forward pocket. That was about three and a half minutes in. And it was worrying only because so the football public rightly felt that with the outs, GWS were right up against it. And this was such a simple goal in not perfect conditions that you thought, oh, that's going to happen all day. They're going to they're midfield and, and run off the back line. They're going to be able to do this all day, just um, get some space. And uh, uh, the simplicity of it was, to me, at the time, now you look back, of course, completely wrong, but it was, to me, the way that GWS were going to get pantsed. Well, speaking of who they had out, obviously Green out, Whitfield out, Cornelio already out. And very early on the piece, um, their skipper was injured. Phil Davis hurt a calf early on, and he was off very early in the piece and off the ground for some time, which meant uh, a fair reorganisation of their defence, which made their effort in standing up as they did lighten the game even more meritorious. This this loss of Davis was critical, and I was watching on TV. He went through a series of runs, went down into the rooms, back up. Were you doing the boundary? No, no, I was in the press box. So he's running along the boundary was comical almost in that, yes, you are moving, but not in a manner that would possibly translate to playing on the field. Yeah, he didn't look that ugly. And he did something clever. He came on and did his shoulder. So <laughs> that's what you've got to do. You've got to get another injury. So you forget about the first one. Oh, okay. <laughs> he, this was a huge problem for them. And... Quite rightly, there was a, a fantastic goal to Jaden Stevenson. Yeah, well, just before that, Finlayson did get the Giants on yes, the board yes. uh, with a good kick from uh, just on 50. The goal to Stevenson, now what I've written here is pressure on Reed, And it was one of those 50-50 balls in the wet and uh, Stevenson just worried Reed out of it, didn't it, he? It was Phil Davis country. Yeah, You see, Phil Davis takes great position. He's a, he's a property manager in the back line. More than he's he's good one on one, but he he occupies space beautifully, and this was wouldn't have happened for Stevenson. There would have been he would have had another person closing in on him. So there's a great worry at this point. Even though, what did you think? The the balance of the game certainly was 
in terms of Ford Ford fifties and possession was GWS's. Yep, no, absolutely. The scoreboard really lied, I think, didn't it? Because um, or did it? Well, yeah, no, I think it did. I mean, well, I'd say this: GWS certainly had were dominant for possession. The inside fifties at quarter time, I think, were fifteen eight or sixteen eight. So yeah. that would reflect that. But it wasn't necessarily threatening possession, was it? They couldn't really create many meaningful chances. Collingwood's use was a lot more efficient early on. Now, I apologise for this because we uh, pride ourselves in knowing the game and the players who play it pretty well. But I had to do a note to self just before quarter time. About? Daniel Lloyd got a mark or a possession. Oh, did you? Who is, who's that? No, 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 Daniel oh. Lloyd. Yeah. He was outside 50 and he went back. And everybody's just, all these Tebos were going, no, no, just relax, go back. It was raining at this point. He's 60 metres out from goal. And I'm thinking, mate, I think you should have moved it on a bit quicker. He missed it. That ball went through three-quarter post high. Mm. Note to self, Daniel Lloyd is a booming kick. So three-point lead to the Pies at quarter time. That became a nine-point lead only two minutes into the second term. Phil Davis had come back onto the ground and gone forward. Uh, which left Ben Reid to be picked up by Aidan Corr, which was going to be interesting. Um, but Reid, in fact, got the first goal of the quarter for the Pies, and uh, they had, a in the conditions, even one and a half goals, a reasonably handy lead. He, he outstrength Corr, didn't he? Just pushed off him at the right time, dived forward and took the grab and converted from 20 metres out. Core strength was... Very, very good, or lack of strength. Lack of core strength for Corr. GWS was still getting their chances, though. Snap point to Hill. And then Cameron. This is a big moment in the game, wasn't it? Uh, great pass from Perryman, actually. Spotted him up from a fair way out. But uh, oh, it was a reasonably tight angle. Maybe, what, 50, 60 degrees. About 48 metres out. But in those conditions, booming left foot kick on his right side for uh, it. His kicking would be telling this, after, this, you know, this afternoon going into evening. It was not easy to make good contact with what was a wet ball on a difficult difficult afternoon and he he's shaping it and controlling it over 50 to 60 metres. That, he had to though, that, that was their second goal from, that had 20 inside 50s to that point and 11 to 2 for the quarter by this stage too. So what's not working for them? Obviously it's a tough afternoon. Hill's electric but he's not able to get, if he gets separation, he's, he had a terrible shot of goal in the first quarter um, that missed everything. He's just not got the depth of kicking to take advantage of it. And the hero from the Brisbane game at this point, pretty unsighted, Brent Daniels. Yeah, I thought uh, Shane Mumford was a worry as well. He g- gave away a fourth free kick yes. uh, by pretty early in that second quarter and was getting beaten in the ruck to boot. Fortunately for him, though, the conditions were um, had put a, a bit of a, 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 a dampener in nulled the effectiveness of Grundy, who just um, double-gripped at a couple of marks, wasn't able to seal the deal on a dry day. He would have been annihilated, but the wet weather was keeping him in the contest. Now, that was actually the last goal of the quarter, but four pivotal incidents I wanted to bring up. One yes. was a uh, a sprint race, really, between uh, Jeremy Cameron and Darcy Moore, the two of them alone in that uh, forward 50 chasing the ball. Who would get to it first? Well, uh, really good work by Moore to harry it through for a point. Another key moment, uh, a 
brilliant spoil by Nick Haynes on uh, Callum Brown, who looked for all the world like he was going to take the mark, and just at the last minute somehow got his fist around the front of uh, Brown's body and spoiled that one out of bounds. Brown then bobbed up, um, looked like he was going to kick one off the ground and had a fresh air oh, shot. Oh, yeah, well, that was, that was um, look, it was sort of frantic, wasn't it? But he should have laid the slipper into that. And then uh, the first of what would be a number of um, <laughs> controversial moments with the goal review. Uh, it looked like a great snap from a stoppage from Scott Pendlebury. Everyone celebrated, and, uh, of course, it was overturned. The most unusual thing about this was there were no protests from GWS. It was extraordinary. In watching the game on TV, this was a goal. We were going back to the centre, and it seemed to me almost, I thought they were being overly cautious or jumping in shadows, having a look at the vision of it. But there was a reason. And at this point, the arc is working well because it's picked up something that the guy who touched it, who who's who got the finger tipped to? Uh, was it Heath Shaw? I can't remember that one. Sorry. Whoever finger tipped it didn't was certainly not vociferous in his complaint. There is something else that happened in the first half that we should make mention of. And Phil Davis's absence was telling, but Sam Taylor, a player who's played less than twenty games of football, is marking it better than anybody on the ground in. Driving rain, he takes a couple of overhead marks that are very important. I, I thought Haynes was absolutely superb as well. Yep. Um, the Pies, around the time that Pendlebury goal, the, the Pies seemed to be dominating. But just the last two, three minutes of the quarter, I, I've written here GWS banging the ball inside 50 and then scramble. So they couldn't capitalise. But nonetheless, you go to half time and uh, it's the pies in front, but only by three points again. GWS really having the better of most of those key statistical categories, except the one that counts the most. Did this cross your mind at half time? The GWS, to me, are playing better than I thought they would, creating more chances, more inside 50s. And I start to feel that the absence of Toby Green is so telling. He would be this low-to-the-ground player who would have been in forward 50 for many of these opportunities. And sure, I'm thinking to myself, surely he would have hit the scoreboard. This is now, to me, a really important decision to keep him out of the game no, at that no, stage. No doubt about that. No doubt about that. And, uh, well, I guess the, the pivotal question became, could Collingwood lift? Because they were sort of hanging in there by virtue of defence and making the most of the opportunities they had. GWS needed to do more with what they were creating. Collingwood are hot favourites. What did you feel was holding Collingwood back? What, where were they failing in what most people thought was going to be an, a, a pretty simple task to execute? I've written it right here. Ground ball gets... And uh, by early in the third quarter, and I'm talking literally only a few minutes in, GWS were up 30, which is a massive number. So not just contest a ball, but ground ball gets on a wet day, uh, arguably the most important stat. They're getting punked at stoppages, aren't they? GWS are very good from stoppages. I think they're the best scoring team from stoppages, and uh, this is where they were dominant. And on a wet day, uh, you'd think if they could just you know have a, a pinch of luck here or there, it might turn on the scoreboard as well. The overlook Taranto is important at this stage, isn't he? Well, here's how the second half unfolded. First goal of the third quarter to the Giants in under five minutes. That came from Daniels. And uh, 
some fantastic in-close work on the boundary line, wasn't it? Look, for all the world, like the ball was going to go out of bounds. Like his goal last week. It was unbelievable. Yeah. I, I'm thinking, this this is the last goal from last week. The ball is being handballed along the tightrope of the boundary, almost impossibly staying in, and he kicks it around the corner for a goal. Well, he started it. Uh, sorry, Hill started it. Uh, handballed to Daniels. Daniels off to Hopper. Hopper back to Hill. Hill back to Daniels. And um, without a throw this time. No, yes. <laughs> yes. They're working. Uh, that could end up being a, a very, very important moment in the context of September, couldn't it? Uh, they're working in a phone box, and uh, Daniels managed to get out in the clear, and a lovely snap. And GWS takes the lead now by four points. And it became a 10-point lead only two minutes after that. And it, again, it came from pressure. And a beautiful one-handed pickup from, uh, I was going to say Marley Williams, Zach Williams, uh, in those conditions. You have a look at that goal again. It's oh, just a one-touch pickup, throws it on the boot, and uh, the Giants are the best part of two goals up. Is he close to best on ground at that stage? Yeah, he'd absolutely. Be, he'd been, as was telegraphed prior to the match with the absence Obviously, if Toby Green, who's done so much work in the midfield, and the fact that Cornelio's not there and Whitfield runs through there, he's, he's pushed further up the ground and he's going brilliantly. Well, to that stage, he'd had 20 disposals, seven clearances. Uh, in contrast, and you mentioned where did Collingwood, where were Collingwood in trouble. Uh, Brody Mychek still hadn't had a possession uh, about 10 minutes into the yep. third quarter of this game. So that was a real worry for them. Next goal for the Giants, ten and a half minutes in from Taranto and from another stoppage. And uh, a lovely tap from, uh, was it Finlayson? Uh, no, Grundy got the tap. Finlayson knocked over the back. And Taranto, poor defence by the Pies, actually. There was no one on the yeah, defensive side on. of that He got stoppage. goals on. It was a very easy goal. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Finlayson and uh, Grundy because... The next goal is controversial. Yeah, it was. And, oh, but uh, you can't do that. It came from a throw-in, and, of course, Grundy had best position. Finlayson, both hands definitely in the back, gave him a decent old shove, grabbed the ball, and check-sided it through. Uh, GWS now 23 points up, 15 minutes into the third term. You're at the ground. I'm so glad that I can ask you this question. That decision and a couple of others in close proximity go against Collingwood. And through the ground effects and audio coming out of my TV, I could see a I could see the peasants revolting. It sounded like that they were furious, the fans, as things started. Just a few decisions going GWS's way. Yeah, no, they certainly weren't happy. It was a bit more subdued in the press box. I don't know what's happened to the noble concept of press box barracking, but uh, it seemed a pretty quiet crew in there yesterday. But, yeah, look, that that was a shocker. And, uh, of course, lots of talk about the uh, controversial goal, which was allowed, which we'll get to. But I guess squared off of sorts by uh, Finlayson being allowed to get away with that push in the back. We, at this point... At, at this point in the game, we've got a rubber band situation, I reckon. Is that, was that your feeling? Uh, it's getting stretched, it's wet, and it's getting, we're getting to a point where I don't know whether Collingwood can come back if they concede too much more. Well, it, it, it didn't really look like it, did it? They got a point through Thomas. They then attacked for a few minutes. In fact, had uh, a spate of 550 inside 50s in a row. Uh, Crisp had another point, uh, back to 21 points with about four minutes left. Is that not the period where Nathan Buckley would look back and say, this is not, we completely mucked this up. 
They started banging the ball forward. Well, they, they were panicking, I think. I'm saying they were banging the ball forward. They lost their shape. They certainly had enough of the ball, but unfortunately, they were not hitting the scoreboard and they were playing straight into GWS's hands because what you want to do when you do slam four goals on, which they did fairly quickly, in those conditions, you want the next score to take as long as possible. And Cameron uh, made it an even bigger mountain to uh, climb over when he took the gap to 27 points uh, with about 2 minutes 40 left on the third quarter clock. This, to all extent and purposes, given the weather at the time, there was some heavy rain in that third quarter. Yeah. This is game, set, match for me. Well, it looked like it. They were up in every major statistic. Again, they'd uh, dominated possession. They were eight tackles to the good. Kelly had had 11 disposals in the third quarter. Nick Haynes, I don't think we've talked enough about Haynes. Look, they know he's a good player. I think yesterday might be the day the entire football world finally realised how good a player this bloke is. He's got great judgement, really good athleticism. Mm-hmm. Um, he had 10 disposals in that third quarter, and the guy is effectively a key position defender. Seven possessions to Williams for the quarter as well. Uh, John Noble, uh, sorry, is it John? Yeah, it yeah. is John. Um, had a uh, chance to close that gap on the siren, but only kicked a point. And, uh, they he, did at, not, he did not look as, as um, confident or as believing in himself as Daniel Lloyd. You know, he, he sort of went back there to kick at goal, but I... I don't think he believed it, and it just went through for a point. Pretty demoralised bunch by the three-quarter time siren with the margin at 26 points. I did hear a stat at three-quarter time too. They were saying the biggest three-quarter time deficit ever overcome in a preliminary final, yet uh, or bigger than the one there was. He had to go back to 1945 where Carlton uh, beat um, ominously Collingwood coming back from 28 points down. Of course, the Blues went on and won the flag. Do you know that game is supposed to have been more violent than the That's subsequent right. bloodbath of the grand final? I have read about that. Of course, Essendon in 93 were 42 points down at half time, but uh, did most of their coming back in the third quarter. Well, speaking about coming back, surely just about everyone thought it was game set a match when uh, in under four minutes, Cameron had his third goal of the game on the board and another superb kick from uh, a fair way out on a, a, a fair angle. What a beautiful kick. If there is anybody that did not think, especially with the touch that Cameron was now in, and the confidence being exuded by the team, and the fact that Mumford is no longer getting thrashed by Grundy, he's starting to win it a bit, could anybody have imagined what was about to unfold? Well, j- just on that too, another poor piece of defence from the Pies here because Phil Davis got a free kick. Cameron picked up the ball and handed it to him and just jogged about 10 metres or the bear. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah mi- and, and no one picked him up. So th- that actually put them in the scoring position. Mm. So 32 points of difference, uh, four minutes gone in the last quarter. Well... Did the tide turn? And in fact, it, it didn't start until 7 minutes 50 into the quarter with 15 minutes left, and it came from a mark from Jaden Stevenson. This was... A, it starts with the trickle of flood. It always does, doesn't it? Mm. Okay, they got the goal. Uh, then they... I mean, you'll go through these, but then all of a sudden with that goal, there was just a bit more confidence... After Thomas's next goal, something happened, and as 
disastrous as it was and, and, and unexpected, the GWS completely went to water. Now, Adam Tomlinson was dropped during this finals for the first final, mm. and Melbourne, I believe, have given him a good offer. I could see why they're not going to fight tooth and nail to keep him. He gets the ball a couple of times and goes for adventurous kicks that are so out of what is required for GWS at this point of time. This is the laissez-faire attitude that they've been accused of previously, that when games need to be um, put to bed, when you're 20 points up with a bit of um, clock awareness and a bit of game awareness, the millionaires come out and get killed. Terrible play by Tomlinson twice. And all of a sudden, they are falling apart. Well, I'll tell you, the other factor here was the crowd. And I was at the at the yes, ground. I was yeah. in the press box, admittedly. But the as soon as the next goal came to Thomas, and this is a controversial one, clearly touched, and I will expand on this, so let's not talk about yep. it now. Yep. But that came only a minute later, a minute and seven seconds later. So with still 14-odd minutes to play, the Pies were back within 19 points. Okay, so the fact that we'll talk about the decision not being overturned, that doesn't change the fact that that was a simple goal of, of at the base of the, sort of roving. Too easy, too easy under the circumstances. Main's goal was great, but again, too easy. Players are in what should be working in a phone box, getting two or three yards of space to turn around and snap at goal. And all of a sudden, this seemingly, you know, wonderful GWS team that had been so tough and at the bottom, well, ground ball winners in the first three quarters, they couldn't win a ground ball. Actually, I think you're underselling Maine's goal. It was a a, a pretty tight sort of environment he had to work in and he basically kicked it in midair. It was, but... 15, 10 minutes later, when GWS somehow regained their, their mojo, mm. it's impossible to kick a goal like that. Yeah. Yeah, no, they definitely, uh, they just sort of switched off a little bit mentally, no doubt about that. So, Maine's goal makes it 13 points of difference with 12 minutes 20 left. Then, another golden opportunity missed, and it was a mark to Ben Reid, pretty gettable shot. He missed, and it was now two goals of difference with 11 minutes to play. Collingwood, by this stage, had racked up nine inside 50s in a row. Unthinkable that he could get a contested mark 30 metres out without a pack of players and Mumford there. It was, again, too easy. This is now when GWS finally awoke from their, I won't say slumber, because that doesn't do Collingwood enough credit, but they certainly picked up the pressure levels again. We had nine minutes of... A lot of messy sort of football, not a lot of chances created. But then Thomas again emerging um, with a snap uh, to make it only six points of difference with seven minutes left to play. And at this stage, I've got to say, finally, I thought Collingwood are going to win this. Yep. GWS had completely lost the ability, first of all, to get the ball past their own centre line, which means that they're constantly under siege. But more importantly, they are now playing for time way too early. It, it appeared at that stage. And we talked about the ground ball gets. This is the other big factor that swung around for the Pies. In the last quarter by this stage, they racked up an advantage of 17-4 in forward half ground ball gets. So they were really starting to lock that ball in. The momentum was building. With should, it. Yeah, so go I should mention anything that went forward, Darcy Moore 
started to be, you know, not only impassable, but very attacking and very um, switched on. Another uh, goal umpiring review moment with uh, another shot from Maine just touched on the line. Uh, that was with five minutes 19 left on the clock. And what was the score when that happened? Uh, well, that brought GWS uh, back to five points in front. He should have probably made the distance from there. I reckon he was about, what, 40 out? So that they were a goal behind when he had the shot? Correct. So, in fact, the, two, the, the umpire initially thought it was a goal, I think. Yeah. I think the goal He said he thought it was a goal. Correct. Yeah. So at that point, the game's level to yeah. all extents and purposes. Another minute on and another critical moment. Taylor Adams picks up, has a flying snap from a fair way out, and it absolutely thumped against the goalpost. GWS now four points up, and four minutes, seven seconds left to And play. that's where I feel they're gone. Collingwood are raining the ball into the forward line and now raining it through the scoring area. Which makes the last four minutes by their defence pretty incredible because, it, it, yeah, just the ball just lived in Collingwood's 50, didn't it? But they were just able to force stoppage after stoppage after stoppage, scramble, trap the ball, force it out. Uh, it was a magnificent little period of defending, wasn't it? Not one player dived on the ball, yet they trapped it in there. Collingwood probably should have almost let them get the ball. The Collingwood played into their hands by being... There was always a Collingwood player willing to jump on the ball. Uh, I wonder whether, you know, there are players out there, leaders at other clubs... I'm not saying Pendlebury did the wrong thing. Is there anybody out there that would have had the, the presence of mind to tell their players, whatever you do, don't jump into a pack, even if there's two of them. Let them, because I could have seen one of their players just picking it up and, you know, kicking it around his body into a Collingwood player 30 metres away, but there were no kicks. Yeah, well, the other thing I noticed about it was it it was sort of an insight into um, how the rule changes have had an impact here. The trouble players were taking to keep their feet. They didn't want to be pinged yeah, for course. lying over the ball, and they didn't want to be pinged for sliding and, and they were, taking they were, the legs. And GWS were very good at getting the ball in a stoppage, but turtling it, turning their bodies over, so at least you know they were presenting the ball to the umpire, which is enough for an umpire to call for a, a ball up as long as they're not on top of the ball. How about the play by Mumford, though? Well, I was just about to bring this up uh, because I'm not sure this has been talked about either. 41 seconds left, a series of ball-ups being forced. Shane Mumford gets the ball in his defensive goal square and proceeds Balks. to execute a balk around, I think, Scott Pendlebury. And it was perfect. It, it was. And the kick was perfect. Look, Shane Mumford is a highly skilled big man. I know he's now characterised quite rightly as accidentally on purpose and he's a physical presence, but he is skillful. Mm. That took such confidence, though, didn't it? Yeah. I, it was pretty amazing. It, it was fantastic. But there was a piece of play before that that deserves mention as well. I can't remember. I might have been Aidan Corr had first hands on the ball near in the forward pocket of Collingwood and Brodie Grundy grabbed the ball and wrenched it from his grip with two hands in a sort of playground, that ball, you know, mine, mine. But Grundy did it from on his knees out of the contest. It was a marvellous piece of snatch and grab. He's a great player. Uh, final play of the game. Now, I may be critical here, but uh, Collingwood pumped the ball in again. Sam Taylor should have taken the mark, went the spoil. I thought is it, it came to ground and bounced up. 
And I thought, is it was a Daniel Lloyd? I think soaked up the last tackle, and I thought, is he going to be pinged for holding the ball? No, he couldn't have been pinged, but it was he. He just punched it. It went sort of up in the air. The punch. It, what you're right for a kid who'd had a great game. I just think he just wanted to not Clear make the them, decks. Yeah, no, well, he wanted to not make the blue. Yeah. No, it was an under, understandable choice, perhaps. Um, and Maynard, the last uh, attack for the Pies. Thumps it. Ball repelled again on the boundary. And I think GWS attempted clearing kick got smothered by a Collingwood player. Mm-hmm. Q siren and uh, Q on one, in one camp, absolute pandemonium, an admi- admittedly smaller camp, and, uh, and the other far more sizable camp, complete shock at what I think, Finey, is clearly the biggest preliminary final upset since Carlton and Essendon in 1999. Hard to ever beat that, given Essendon's domination that year. I would say that it's equal. Mm. Really, the players that were out, now we watch this game back and all of a sudden players that we know were good because they were picked up at at the pointy end of the draft, they never get credit for GWS. You know, it's like, well, they had Kelly and Taranto and Hopper, and they're all top picks anyhow, and Cameron. And, mate, they had guys, Lockie Keefe, for goodness sake, mm. Sam Reed, Brent Daniels, Daniel Lloyd. Yep. These are not top-end players, but they put in a top-end shift all afternoon. Another guy is probably worthy of mention, Perryman. I thought he did some really nice and things. And Finlayson. Yes. 85 in the draft or something. He was not a high. He was not a, a low number. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll refer to a couple of those things very shortly. Just on the pies, Jeremy Howe, outstanding in defence. 28 disposals for him. A lot of good spoiling. Crisp, I thought, really big for them early. Grundy, not as dominant, clearly. And I think bringing in Keefe was a, a really good move as it transpired for GWS. But Grundy finished with 73 hit-outs, believe it or not. Yeah, that... that- is a number slightly... Inflated? It's not inflated, but in that last quarter, wasn't Mumford clever? He knew that one of the only ways they could lose the game, because it was so hard to get a kick, was if he infringed in the ruck. Mm. And he infringes in the ruck a lot. And he was so careful to allow uh, Grundy to hit tap the ball, but not grab the ball. He was sort of almost rucking to tackle. Now, finally, as we talk about the Pies, and and there's no doubt they will be shattered. They'll be just as shattered now as they were on grand final day last year. Because I heard, I heard Buckley, he he marks this far more hard a harder pill to take because last grand final was an enormous effort, and it was just oh my god we've been beaten. Here it is hugely frustrating because according to him, for three quarters they let themselves down terribly. Well, here's two. Key players and their numbers. Scott Pendlebury, 18 disposals. Yep. Steel Sidebottom, 16 disposals. Yes. Well, unfortunately, well, Matt DeBorg can take credit again with Pendles. I'm not, in fact, I'm trying to work out who Sidebottom's opponents would have been throughout the day. No, I don't, I don't think it was an issue of a direct opponent. I just think he's a great player. The conditions were tough. And he was one of those players that never that didn't, unfortunately, appear to put his nose and head over the ball as long and as hard as his opponents did for three quarters. And that's really where they lost it, I feel. Yep, yep. No, they're, they're two, arguably two biggest players, along with Grundy, um, just didn't have 
two of their better games. And and, and, and their and key hurt. forward didn't take a telling mark and kick a goal because they don't have a key forward. To, Mike Fleck's a great second banana and a, a real good effort man. But with all that play in that last quarter, I reckon a key forward would have been infringed or marked or something could have happened if they had a real full forward. Well, there it is. Collingwood's season over. GWS into their first ever grand final in their eighth season. There are the two preliminary finals wrapped up thoroughly. Let's talk about the highs and lows of the weekend. On Footyology, hot or not. All right, I'm going to kick us off and uh, just goes back to a point you just made before about GWS. They've definitely become a more blue-collar team, um, but I reckon this guy deserves a hot, and he's the coach, Leon Cameron. He has been, I wouldn't say pillory, but there has certainly been a view in um, elements of the media, and it appears elements of AFL officialdom, that he is uh, just a coach who should be getting a lot more out of what is at his disposal. Well, first off, I'm not sure what is at his disposal is the Ferrari now that a lot of people still claim. They have lost so many talented players for a variety of reasons, uh, mainly because it's hard to keep on to that many really good players. But they have, sometimes through design, sometimes through um, accident, been forced to become a, a more traditionally built football team with uh, with players who are role players, aren't necessarily overly gifted, but do their job. And I think Leon Cameron has shaped them as a group beautifully. More to the point, this is a side which only, what, four or five games ago was in consecutive weeks held goalless for an entire half. Now, you watch that happen. You think that isn't a side that can possibly even come close to a premiership. In fact, they'll probably go out in, in the very first week of the finals. Well, they're into a grand final because uh, they have served up three of the very best performances in their career. I think that's a credit to the coaching. Even preliminary final, I think bringing in Lockie Keefe um, was an inspired move. I think he had to show trust in his defensive group when Phil Davis got injured, so he sent Davis forward and Haynes, Taylor, Williams, et, uh, Cor, et al. were able to hold the lines. I think uh, bringing in and trusting players like Reed, Lloyd and Daniels to do particular roles has been uh, very good coaching as well. And I think they've finally got that balance right between a hard contested brand and uh, a skillful outside game that makes them a very, very dangerous proposition, even in a grand final that they're going to go into as uh, fairly major outsiders. So a tribute to Leon Cameron. Um, he's worked hard, never got much kudos, because every time they've looked good, it's been because of the players, not him, and vice versa. And I think he's earned a massive pat on the back. Look, I've been banging on about this like a, a, a tin monkey with a mechanical wind-up toy on the drum. You cannot have a team full of top-end draft picks. They, they're not bad people, but they are by definition almost the ducks of their classes. They, Each and every one of them want to be match winners. Each and every one of them want to be the pea in the pod. And that's not how football teams work. The journey, the road less travelled is an inspiring one. And Sam Reid's story, Lockie Keefe's story... Lockie Keefe was singled out for praise after the game by Leon Cameron. I didn't realise this. He's just been given a two-year contract extension. Mm. And this is a player that was 
probably when you add up their injuries, not close to being in their best team. I, I cannot say how pleased I am for Leon Cameron to succeed with this sort of team because there can be nothing but praise the, all of those people that were going to say, oh, well, you had the Ferrari, big deal. Well, this ain't no Ferrari. But, and it's, but it's driving like one. He's a lovely guy too. Yes. All right, what do you got? The umpiring in both games, that second game particularly, or the first game, depending on whether you go by the uh, actual time of the game or the name of the game. So the first was the second and the second was the first. The wet game was brilliantly umpired. Very hard game to umpire. The three umpires were on the same page. They gave more favours to the attacking team. So GWS got the better of it in the third quarter. Collingwood in the last quarter. I think that's fair without over the top. They were very sensible with intentional out of bounds. There was one in the last quarter, but there weren't 20. Very hard to umpire with a parochial crowd. I thought that was great. I thought the umpiring was very good in the first game. And given that there's been a lot of talk about the arc, I hope that people realise that the umpiring was of the highest standard. Yeah, no, I, I certainly, I mean, apart from the um, the ruck thing with Finlayson, uh, I, yeah. I can't think of a single major clanger, of an umpiring clanger in the first two games. And I don't, know his, both I, don't, games. I don't know his name. There's a boundary umpire in the first game, the Richmond-Geelong game. He throws the ball so high. It's like a 40-metre kick. He must have incredibly sort of muscular and fluid arms. <laughs> you could be the first person in the history of football media to comment on a bound- a good boundary throw-in and You're not kidding. a poor boundary throw In the first nine years up in Sydney, all the Swan supporters were interested in was the throw-in. <laughs> Ooh! And they'd applaud it or boo it. All right, uh, a not for me second up, and uh, you mentioned it in passing, and it has to happen, the arc. And I've been desperately trying to think of a gag about uh, two of everything on on Noah's Ark. Well, they'd need two arcs maybe to get this right because they've spent God knows how much money on it. They've got the best minds and the best watches apparently to do this and they still stuffed it up. And that Josh Thomas goal, given that they'd already overall the Pendlebury one, which wasn't nearly as obvious a touch, I think, as was uh, affected by Lockie Keefe on Josh Thomas's snap. I just could not believe that uh, they didn't, con- or the official in question, didn't uh, consider the evidence compelling enough to overturn it. And he's not the... So this they've got several people in there. Surely other people looked at it and saw some sort of touch on it. I just could not understand that at all. When I looked at the replays again, the vision still isn't clear. And this is where I think, um, and, and this is beyond my expertise, but the broadcasting, are they not, are Seven still not shooting the games in high definition or something? Because it still looks remarkably blurry, even on those close-ups. Yeah, I, dis- I disagree. I think the arc worked well. I don't think the decision was correct. I don't think it's as definitive as people say, but I would have given that a point. Nevertheless, the arc was very effective in quickly and without most people expecting it to happen correctly, reversing the Pendlebury goal and also the final kick at goal by... Oh, he kicked at the one that touched the elbow. Um, uh, that was Maine, Maine, wasn't it? Maine. Yeah. Uh, so... Well, but I like the timeliness because in the past we've had three-minute waits yeah, for yeah. important decisions. Yeah. So I think that the methodology is correct. I think the 
available footage needs to be better. Well, I disagree with your disagreement. Yes. Only in that um, this the controversial one, it was a silent review, and everyone's going, what's a silent review? Well, that's where the goal umpires and called for one, but they examine uh, every goal it isn't. They're and, known as silent but deadlies. Uh, yeah, okay. Or a one-cheek sneak. <laughs> um, I, I think they have to not be so worried about the time taken. I mean, you can't have your cake and eat it too. If you're going to go to all that trouble of investing the money in it, get it right. And I think the reason it was rushed, I think had the goal umpire called for a review, this one would have been found. I think the fact that it was a silent review, which meant the ball was already going back to the centre, meant that they had less time to look at it. And I think they arrived too hastily at that conclusion that there wasn't compelling enough footage. Anyway. Uh, but, but, but I know you're at the game, but as usual, the lynch mob was um, summonsed and up and running very quickly by the commentators who, in especially the GWS Collingwood game, were obsessed with having discussions about umpiring, and which was great. And too high. Like, it's like sitting next to football fans who just... We understand that the... Many decisions in football are not black and white. To have the commentators lead the charge for A, dissent with the umpires, and B, a complete contempt for the arc is ridiculous. It's Get on board, people. You, you, you are literally shitting on the game. Get on the not arc. Not literally. You're not literally shitting on it. You are figuratively shitting on the game. Get on the arc and bring a mate, because you've got to have two to get on an arc. I don't believe that story. That's rubbish, that Noah's story. Okay, you're next. Not a a hot. I'm going for a hot. Okay. And I've mentioned him, Sam Taylor. That kid can play. He's he's really taken on a very difficult assignment in the wet to be an intercept mark. And it wasn't until the last 10 seconds of the game that he didn't hold his nerve. I could have have totally... You had a bloke for Essendon this year who came in to do the same role. Is his name Hartley? I think he's been delisted. Uh, Michael Hartley? Yeah. Uh, not yet. <laughs> Wait, no, I'm saying I watched him play a game. Every time he got in that position, he punched it like 30 metres in the air because it is a risk taking a mark. This, the Essendon player was punching it under the roof at Eddie Head, and this kid was marking it in the pouring rain in a preliminary final. He's a talented kid. I thought it was great. All right, good stuff. Uh, I'm finishing with a hot, and we mentioned him in the game review, but Basho Hawley, what an outstanding player he has been for Richmond. And you know what, uh, and it hurts me to say it as an Essendon man, but in the Kevin Sheedy era, I know Sheeds used to pride himself on never giving away players who would subsequently embarrass him. Oh, really? Yeah. We're not going to have a... Who? Adrian Burns and Tony Antrobus. Oh, okay, very good. <laughs> To St Kilda, of course. Um, well, that has certainly turned around on several occasions since he left, but no more, obviously, than in this case. And uh, think about it now. In four seasons at Essendon, Hawley could only get 26 games. My understanding is when James Hurd came aboard as coach, he did try very hard to keep him. But Richmond, uh, I think, had made a far better contractual offer. It was like I think it was three years compared to one or something. Anyway, I mean, the people who counted at Essendon just simply didn't rate him enough, and it's been to their cost. 181 games subsequently for the Tigers over nine seasons. 
barely missed a game apart from two little uh, injury periods in that time. 32 disposals in the preliminary final, nine rebound 50s, five inside 50s, seven one percenters. He's cool-headed. He's half de- and half an elbow. Uh, yeah, for which he got away with. Um, his disposal is immaculate. Again, a ripping bloke. Um, deserves every success and what an outstanding player for Richmond he is and I'm sure will continue to be for a while yet. Never, I- never met him, but he loves fishing. Loves fishing. I want to go fishing with him. I met uh, one of his, I think his cousin uh, runs a stall at Camberwell Market, actually, and I've had a few. Is it called Hooli Dooley? Good chats to him. No, it's not. Come on, your last one. Okay, not hot. Ain't karma a bitch. Now, I'm a huge fan of Paddy Dangerfield. Hey, don't get into Paddy. I love Paddy. I'm a huge fan of his. But? But, almost in the style of Gary Hocking, who once did the funny walk on the way into goal. Remember that? When he waggled his bum and... You know, a bit of uh, hubris before, don't, he, actually. before he kicked it. Oh, look it up. It's great. He walked into the goal square doing a funny walk and kicked the goal. Just before half time, as we've commented, Paddy got a free kick at 50 metre penalty and the Richmond crowd were berserk. The pe- penalty took him onto the goal line, but in a <laughs> quite comical, but it is a final, mate, um, sort of up yours to the Richmond supporters or. You want to boo me? They keep booing me. I've got 30 seconds. He very carefully and almost laboriously lined up this shot at goal from no metres out, letting Richmond supporters just go, go stew into a frenzy. They were going to kill him. They wanted to murder him. Just kick it. That was one of his last kicks for the game. You know, it came back to bite him on the bum a bit. It, it, it was funny. Did you see what he did? He, well, he moved the ball around in his hand. Yeah. He had a bit of a snicker. It was like, you want to you wanna lose it at me? I ain't kicking it yet. I, I've just, yeah, I, I missed it, actually, to be honest. And I've just worked out why I missed it, because there were four seconds left in the half. Yep. And that meant one thing, finally, that I'd got up from my desk and was walking at some speed to the pie warmer. Yeah, that, <laughs> for those who don't know the media centre, at, at the MCG, a beautiful selection of mini pies and mini... The mini pies and mini... Party pies. P- correct. Sausage rolls. Yeah. But, but... Oh, and other stuff too. Good, good other But, stuff. you know, between... Not you, actually. It was always Beaver was great on the teeth. Yeah. There are some people there. Like Russell Holmesby. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm pretty good, but you've got to... You've got to really move. Yeah, well, the radio stations now have uh, sort of assistants whose job is to get there before anyone else. I so think they're I, called lackeys. Well, I've got to get there before the lackeys, and yeah. they've now got very helpful-sized paper cups in which you can... Um, I can get about eight in if I cram them. Yeah. And uh, anyway. I, that's can I, I add it. to my not hot? Yeah, quick. All right. You know what? 16 bucks worth of fish and chips does not include one piece of fish that is so battered that what is left it must be a goldfish fillet. <laughs> what on earth? I just was biting through the batter. Where's the friggin' fish? Yeah. That's not fair. Don't do that to me. All Don't right. do it to me. Okay, it's a not to MCG caterers. Oh, it's my own fault. Eat a pie at the footy or nothing. All right. There's the highs and lows of the two preliminary finals. I think, finally, it's time we did some serious ranting. On Footyology, the rant off. All right, I'm going to spring this on you. You're yep. up first. Really? Yep. Three, two, one, rant. Absolute bullshit. AFL, 
MCG, Richmond, I don't blame you. Since when, and I have not, I've got to admit, Rowan, because I'm a St Kilda supporter, I haven't been to a lot of preliminary finals in the last decade. But my memory is that preliminary finals are a great finals game where the only advantage to the team that is seeded higher, remember Geelong finished on top of Richmond but lost that seeding after the first week of the finals, the only advantage comes with the colour of shorts you used to be able to wear and the dressing rooms that you ran out of. The Richmond versus Geelong preliminary final was hosted as a home game, complete with competitions, kids running against the Jeep for the Richmond prize, two teenage or 20-year-old Richmond promotion journos talking at quarter time and three-quarter time. Oh, that was great. Great goal by Dusty. Two great goals by Lingshi. Yeah, you're losing. It's a final. It's not a Richmond home game. After every Richmond goal, rawr, the Richmond Tiger. After every Geelong goal, zilch, nada. Now, Tony Shebeki's uh, the voice of the G and a Richmond supporter. I think he was pretty impartial. But it was no different to a Richmond home game. That is wrong, people. That is wrong. That's not how it's supposed to be. This is a final. Once you arrive at the ground, the two teams are equal. What's going to happen next week when poor little GWS turn up? Are we going to have Jack Dyer impersonations? Will KB come out for a song and dance? No, it's wrong. I'm telling you, don't do it again. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. I must admit, I had hadn't even thought about it till you raised it. But uh, yeah, I, I think in finals, there's the home ground advantage should be only it's unprofessional shorts and rooms. <laughs> yeah. It is. It's unprofessional. Look, I was um, MC for uh, ground announcer for the Melbourne Victory for the first six seasons, and you present the game as a Melbourne Victory home game with all the Melbourne Victory bells and whistles. When the finals come, a completely different organisation take over. I was still the ground announcer, but I had guidelines for impartiality, and that was how it should be. All right. No, you'd take that role seriously, and uh, I think you're right. I think you're right. Plus, uh, and I don't need to remind anyone of this, would there be any chance that for five seconds during your time sitting in the ground, you could actually have some silence just to contemplate what's been going on? Well, there was. Oh, after a John goal? No. Uh, when? Just before, when, you, when you're asked to stand up. And why, does, why are you asked to take your hat off for the National Anthem? It's not 1923. <laughs> Please take your hats off for the National Anthem. Yeah. I had to go and buy a hat to take it off. <laughs> All right, <clears throat> count me in. Three, two, rant now. I'm pissed off with the tabloid media, Finey. How <laughs> dumb do they think we all are? Grand final week has barely begun, and they've started already with the biggest myth in football, and that is that everyone in Victoria will be barracking for Richmond on Saturday. It's like clockwork. And sure enough, I pick up the Sunday Herald Sun today, and there it is on the front page. Quote, The rampant Tigers carry the hopes of a state in the grand final against Greater Western Sydney. Unquote. 
Jesus, talk about predictable. The only thing in that paper you can count on more is Andrew Bolt denying climate change, defending pedophile priests, and turning himself into some kind of martyr defending the oppressed. Well, I'll tell you what's being oppressed, Finey. Our bloody intelligence. This is the eighth grand final in a row which will pit a Victorian team against a non-Victorian team. And in every bloody one, this same rag has made some pathetic appeal to some mythical sense of cross-club parochialism which has never existed. This year it's Richmond. Last year it was Collingwood. They did it four grand finals in a row with Hawthorne. Let's just leave alone the whole flawed premise for a moment. Could you pick three worse clubs to ask fans of other Victorian teams to throw their weight behind? Yeah, well, maybe Carlton or Essendon. But still, Hawthorne? Seriously, they win a flag about once every four years on average. You can't turn on a TV channel without one of their former greats crapping on about their past heroic deeds, and they've got the worst colour scheme in world sport. Collingwood? Do I really need to elaborate on that? Do the names Eddie Maguire or Joffa ring any bells? And Richmond? Ask anyone who grew up in the 70s about them getting the sympathy vote. Yeah, sure, they may have got some a couple of years ago and they hadn't won a flag since Kevin Bartlett had hair. But boy, it hasn't taken long for the arrogance of the fan base to kick in again. And media organisations think we're going to forget all that, just like goldfish, and get on board? Seriously, grow a brain, will you? We'd rather throw our weight behind Darth Vader United than cheer on one of our mortal local enemies. But actually, Finey, now think about it, I reckon there is one cause all Victorian football club supporters can get behind. And it's barracking for quality football reporting on our great game instead of the beat-ups, blowhards and bullshit that sadly fills our news pages today. Come grand final day, it's footyology which will be there, reporting the game, ignoring the spin, rejecting the rubbish, and giving you the sort of honest-to-goodness content, the passion, and the knowledge that you deserve. Get behind, Rocco and Finey folks, as the People's Podcast fights for truth, justice, and the footyology way. We won't just carry the hopes of a whole state, we'll carry the dreams of football media consumers across the universe so that our brains won't be reduced to the size of a pea! You little beauty, yes. There are three certainties in media, my friend. What are they? Three absolute certainties. One, if a Melbourne team is playing or a Victorian team is playing, as you've described, that is one. Two, the first 40 degree plus day of the summer, there'll be a news story where giant ice blocks with herrings in them are given to the polar bears at the zoo, and then they cross to a nursing home where seemingly near-dead inmates are given little red icy poles. And finally, Melbourne Cup, the last shot of the Melbourne Cup coverage will be a girl hobbling home, holding her shoes just in her hand above her shoulder. Don't forget your two favourite headlines from the old Sun News pictorial during the cold snap. Phew, what a chiller. Oh, sorry, brr, what a chiller. And during the heat wave, fuel, what a scorcher. Or, or, no, cold snaps, they go to Mount Evelyn and get some poor kids to try and build a snowman out of hail. It was snowing in Mount Everest. No, it isn't a tail, you idiot. All right, I've got another certainty, Finey. This segment will run too long. On Footyology, the final word. All right, Finey, competition time. What have you got? The competition was your own take on Brownlow medals, whether you had uh, maybe been involved through wagering or something you'd seen on the coverage or maybe gone to get some autographs. Personalising Brownlow 9, we had some great entries, a couple of runners-up, and given my love of Lenny Hayes, Nick Lee can consider himself very unlucky because I adore Lenny, both as footballer and as man, and 
he remembers 2010 just before the grand final. St Kilda were in that against Collingwood, of course. Lenny Hayes would go on to win the first Norm Smith medal, by the way. And he remembers just in the last round or two, the camera panned around the auditorium. And, you know, totally understandably, uh, Cam Mooney was shown and he was having a beer and a laugh, uh, you know, having a bit of a a chuckle on the Geelong table. And and then they uh, panned further around and uh, another player was uh, skylarking. I won't mention who it is. It doesn't matter. Lenny Hayes wasn't in the reckoning to win, but then they showed Lenny. And he said he was just taken by the fact that he was gazing intently at Demetria, who was rambling on about something, giving him his full attention and giving the moment the respect it deserved, while everybody else seemed to be either drunk or or too cool for school. And I thought it was a very good observation. Well done, Nick. Unlucky not to win. Ari, wasn't it? No, that was Nick. Oh, sorry. That was Nick. Now, Ari Vlahos is a great pal of ours, and he's already won once. Remember, all winners... The slate is wiped clean next week. Different prize for the grand final. You're all welcome back in to win. But Ari Vlahos tells a great story of the 1948 McGarry medal. He wasn't there, but being a South Australian, he knows that Bob Hank, who won it, actually only heard about it on radio that night at 10pm, well after the count was held, that he had won it. But his wife was already asleep and he was a market gardener, didn't want to wake her up and didn't tell her and went to work without telling his wife that he had won South Australia's greatest individual honour in football. Early in the morning. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So she went about her daily business and could not understand for the life of her why every shop she went into, the shop owner and the customers who knew her, congratulated her. <laughs> she really had no idea, apparently, till she got home and said, I've had the strangest day, Bob. People have congratulated me and I have no idea what for. And he goes, oh, I won the McGarry medal. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. I wish it was like that now. <laughs> well, Freddie Goldsmith had a similar thing. He was working for, he was a fireman at Spotty. And um, he, he was told, you know, somebody drove to the fire station and told him. And he asked his boss, the head fire chief, whether he could have the night off. And you know what the boss said? No. My word, you can soon as his shift finishes. <laughs> I should have called a fake fire alarm to tell him. But they all they all had a huge piss up in the fire station, which makes me wonder what would happen if there was a fire that night. But our winner, and we do have a good winner, and there were other entries, not everybody gets read out, but tonight our winner is Grant Siemens. Grant Siemens, Siemens I should say. And this is a ripper. 1995, his father, they live in Ballarat. His father uh, works for the local council. And uh, he was doing a, working at a transfer station near the tip. And there were new laws for rubbish and things had to be put in piles. So his father had to sort them out and see what was in each pile, you know, paper and this and that. And he brought home this bag for the boys because he struck on something. And have a listen to this. It was full of folders of Football cards, year after year after year, going back. And in one of them, there was something that didn't look like the normal set of footy cards card. And he opened it up. And there was a printed message on the inside that read, Thanks for your support and best wishes after winning, after my winning of the 1962 Brownlow Medal. And there was a name signed underneath it on this odd-looking card. They rang all the people, footy experts, that nobody knew what the card was. And they worked out, of course, that it was 
Alastair Lord's Brownlow year. So they contacted Alastair Lord and he remembered writing that message on a card that was very rare and signing it on the very night he won the Brownlow medal. Now, the Geelong Football Club have requested that very card for their museum, politely been declined, and he has, from the 1962 Brownlow Medal celebrations that night at Geelong, because I think the votes were held in, in private, the, a card signed by the winner thanking him, thanking, for their, thanking a, a fan for their support. Oh, nice work. Came out of a tip. So not only did they get that card, but now they've got prizes as a result. Well done, Grant, and well done, Grant's dad. And I feel that as Geelong supporters, they could do with a bit of a bunk-up, so they get the Andrew, Andrews Hamburgers T-shirt. Yes. They get the Andrews Hamburgers cap. Yes. They get the Argon towel. 100%. But most organic interestingly, cotton. they don't live in Geelong anymore. They live in somewhere called Wadi in the Northern Territory. Oh, that's going to be a bit of postage. I don't well, think you'd be driving well, up there to well, drop I've that had, one off. I've right? had one f- to the Northern Isn't Territory. Isn't it Wadi? Wai- is it? Wadi. Oh, yeah. No, sorry. That's another place. Yeah, I can okay. tell you this, that I sent one to a far-flung place in the Northern Territory. It cost a lot, and it takes, no word of a lie, because yeah. I did a reason, I'm not doing express, it takes 40, 49 days to get there. Really? Yep. Uh, yeah, it could be less. Could I think less. that was Jed, actually. Jed Zorkling. Yeah. yeah. The Zork. Um, well, well done, Grant. Great, uh, so we, all we need from you, Grant, is just email us back at info at footyology.com.au uh, with your T-shirt size, size. to make yeah. sure. Um, actually, and just make sure you don't put on any more weight in the 49 days it takes to... Up to 49 days. <laughs> Up to 49. Oh. And all you have to do is send us that card for verification and we'll keep it. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. All right, well, that is the last of our regular competitions. But, yes. boy, do we have a ripper for you. Listen up, everyone. Our grand final competition. This is what you will win. Will we throw in a Andrews Hamburgers T-shirt and cap as well? Of course we shall. Okay, we'll throw in Andrews Hamburgers T-shirt and cap. But this, this week, for our grand final week competition, not just an Argon gym towel, courtesy of Argon, the grand prize is a 300-thread-count full bedding set, 100% fair trade certified organic cotton, and Argon are winners of two Australian Enterprise Awards in Excellence in Organic Textiles and Best Luxury Organic Cotton Bed and Bath Products. I swear to God, that towel is luxurious. The set includes one flat sheet, one fitted sheet, a pair of pillowcases, and one doona cover. Value, king size, $585 worth of bedding, and queen size, $505, of course, depending on your bed size. Very sexist. Uh, don't give us a single, everyone. Uh, king or queen. But there you go. Up to nearly $600 worth of bedding uh, if you have a king size bed. And a big thanks to Argon, have been great supporters of ours on Footyology and on the website, footyology.com.au. So that is the prize. And everyone is eligible, even previous winners. And this is what you have to do. It is grand final weekend coming up and the coverage will be on TV and various radio stations. And believe you me, all of the callers, and you know who they are, the big names will be calling and they're all looking for that famous moment that will be remembered in perpetuity. Generally, it comes up 
by accident or at the time, but they prepare for them. So, you know, the old Leo Barry or Star, that was just serendipitous, but others are prepared for. So we want you to come up with a single line from the game. It can be any time in the game. It can certainly be after the final siren. It can be humorous. It can be something that sums up your prediction for the game. It can be, you know, fitting, ironic, you know, Toby Green related. There's so many subplots and stories. Can I give another example? And this is uh, immediately following the siren, one that always sticks in my head, 2006, Anthony Hudson. Who'd have thought the sequel would be as good as the original? Fantastic. Great line. And spontaneous. He couldn't have counted on another one-kick thriller. For me, the most famous and memorable line is, Hit the boundary line! Oh, I'll have I a, tip this. Oh, I'll have a heart attack in a minute. I've already had three, Butch. <laughs> Hit the boundary line. So, that, then, so that's they, what they, we're they, getting at. Yeah, so it, it can be something as impromptu as that or something that might just happen and, you know what? The winner walks away with a fantastic prize, the Argon betting, but also... We will dip our lids to you because we expect a lot of entries. You don't have to explain them. You can literally send through six words and walk away with a lot. You will enter, here's the line, you will enter into footyology immortality. That comes from the most overrated horse race and call in the history of Australian uh, racing. Kingston Town, no. Cox Plate. No. 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 Oh, uh, Carby Dover. No, no, no. Oh, Bone Crusher, Bone our Waverly Crusher, Star. Our Waverly Star. They both went early, as did Bill Collins. And by the way, neither of them went down into racing in immortality. Bone Crusher remained good, and our Waverley star dropped off to be a, a bit of a stinker. All right, back on the ball game. Uh, a public service announcement just before we go, and we don't often do this, but this is a, a special cause. This is a gig at the Gasometer Hotel in North Melbourne. Yes, um, in the, the shadows of the famous ground. And it is on Wednesday, the 25th of September, so this coming Wednesday at 730 and it's called, it's a gig, and it's called For the Jumper. 18 bands representing all 18 AFL clubs will play the club theme song and one other song relating to that chosen team. So there you go. There's a guaranteed 36 songs coming your way performed <laughs> by 18 no bands. Some <laughs> band's going to perform the West Coast song. Yep. <laughs> I've got to go. I've well, got to see that. it's going to be a ripper at the Gasso, the Gasometer Hotel, Wednesday, the 25th of September at 7.30pm. You can uh, find full details at uh, facebook.com slash events. Look up for the jumper. And tickets are available at moshticks.com.au. Most importantly, all proceeds going to the Elizabeth Morgan House Aboriginal Women's Services. So I said it is a great cause. Get along if you're a fan of footy and a fan of music. Now, I know you've got a very heartfelt sign-off tonight, and I'll hand back that to, I'll hand it to you in a minute. Or well, when I say tonight, it could be listened to during the day. But I've got another rant. Okay, make it really quick. GWS is the worst friggin' name in the history of sport. It's a disgrace. It sounds like the Geelong Water Service. I hate it. Yeah, I don't like it a lot. QWS. I was going to say, I shouldn't have any triple-barreled team names, but then what about Queens Park Rangers? Well, QPR, I, and I like QPR, okay, but it's still Queens Park 
QPR. Do, yeah, do the, we have to follow GWS? Yeah, no, the greater. The greater ruins it for me. Yeah, yeah. The greater 3 3UZ? Yeah. 930. And then they became 927. No, nah, it's a shit house name. All right. Okay. But a good team. There's good two team. Prance, uh, two reds for the price of one. All right. That's enough. More than enough for tonight. Uh, thanks for your company. Hope you enjoyed the show. Hope you enjoyed the preliminary finals. Good luck for next Saturday if you follow the Tigers or the Giants. And uh, just signing off this evening, and apologies for the self-indulgence, but I had a pretty difficult day yesterday. I, I saw a fantastic preliminary final, but it was also a pretty sad day in our house where we had to put down our beloved pet, uh, Tuppy, who was a oh, mix... Oh, what a way to finish the show. I'm sorry. He was a That's mix sad. of several breeds, Tup, um, but he was a beautiful little dog, and I hadn't been a dog owner till. I took up with uh, my partner, Abby, and uh, Tup has lived with me and all the others for the last 10 years and lived with them before me for seven years. He had a a wonderful life, um, and we're going to miss him dearly. Uh, He had a very peaceful and restful departure from this mortal coil. But I've got to say, I got home from the footy last night, and uh, I usually hear the little clip-clops of his nails on the lino. Stop it! Just... Get on with it. And I, d- I didn't hear it, and uh, it was quite upsetting. So um, I've actually tweeted something about it if you want to have a look, and I've posted a picture of Tuppy. But, mate, you were a gem. You brought much pleasure into our lives, and I'm dedicating this sign-off song to you. We'll see you on Thursday, and we're leaving you with the foves, and dogs are the best people. Yeah.